All right. So um, we come to that point in our worship service where we review together some of the simple truths of the Christian faith. So if you're new here, every week we take one belief we hold as Christians and we discuss it. Uh, and then I, I give this table talk to take home and as a family or as a group sit down over a table and discuss how this truth influences us as Christians and the way we live. And so this week, uh, we begun to ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? And so this week, the answer to that question is this, that the Holy Spirit is the author of all of Scripture. Now, this is incredibly important for us, and it, it, it's really good news because if we want to know God and what he has to say to us, all we have to do is look at the book that he wrote for us. Because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, it means that we have in our hands the very words of God. And this is why the, uh, the Scripture is so important for us as Christians, because if we want to speak to God, we go to his word to hear from him. If we want to know what God thinks about us, we go to his very words. If we want to know how he wants us to live, we go to his very words. So I encourage you to take home this table talk and like I said, as either a family or as a small group, discuss these truths together this week. Um, but if you are one of the younger members of our church, if you're in third grade or younger, right now I would like to dismiss you. Uh, Mr. Tony is in the back and he is leading Children's Church today, so you can join him. And parents, after the service is over, you can pick them up um, at... Uh, at the, what Sunday school room is that? It's, it's down the hall, three doors on the left. So we'll help you find it if, if, uh, if you're having trouble. But uh, this week we are in the book of Jude. So we've been looking at the short one chapter books of the New Testament over the course of the summer. Jude is a little bit longer than 2nd and 3rd John, but just like 2nd and 3rd John, uh, despite its small size, there is a lot in there. There's a lot for uh, uh, who we are as followers of God and how we should live our life as Christians. And so we're going to begin that to look at that today. But because Jude is a little longer, we're going to take three weeks to look at it together with a, with a break next week because next week is going to be Family Sunday where we invite the kids and their families from BBS to come out. Uh, worship with us and to, and to celebrate the, the family fun day after church. So we hope to see you all there to welcome in these families and to greet them and to have a chance maybe even to share the gospel with them. Um, but we begin the book of Jude today. Uh, so if you have all turned there, we're going to look at the first four verses together. So I invite you to stand with me uh, as we read the scripture. So Jude, verses one through four. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we listen attentively to your word today, that we, as your followers, would seek to apply it to our lives, that we live in accordance to you and obedience to our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I also pray, Father, if there's 
those in the, uh, in, in the church today who, who don't yet know your son, who haven't yet received the gift of the gospel, that you would press upon them the, the incredible gift that you freely offer to them and that they would um, turn and be relieved for the very first time. And I pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So when we look at the book of Jude, in order to understand it in its context, right, to understand why this book was written so that we can better understand what it's actually saying, uh, we, we need to ask, okay, who wrote this book, who did they write it to, and why did they write it? So some of the basic questions, right? And we see right at the beginning that this book, its human author, we already know, from our question of the day, right, that the ultimate author of this book is the Holy Spirit. But the human author is identifies himself as Jude. Now, this Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, this introduction is actually very interesting because we, we have to ask a question. Okay, servant of Jesus Christ, so he's a Christian. Cool. Um, why does he identify as brother of James? Who is this James person? Now, there is one James that the early Christians would know and identify if they talked about his brother. And that James would be the James who led the church in Jerusalem. We see that in Acts, that there is a James that um, Paul and Barnabas went to, and he kind of led the council as they were answering the questions, how do Gentile believers fit within the church? What part of the Old Testament do they have to adhere to, whatnot? Uh, those questions were all led by James, and this James was the brother of Jesus. So what's interesting about this book is that Jude, in writing to this church, identifies himself as servant of Jesus and brother of James. But notice who he doesn't identify himself as, as brother of Jesus. Not because he wasn't, but because his authority that he is basing on is that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. He appeals also to James so that people know who he is. But ultimately, this letter is not written by someone who's appealing to some sort of hereditary association with Jesus, some sort of shared genetics for authority. Instead, he's saying, as a servant of Jesus, I come to you. And that's why he writes this. And that is the authority. The authority is not his because of some blood relationship to Jesus. The authority is, is because he is about to teach the truth of Scripture. right? And that's what we base it on. And, and that becomes important. Um, and who is he writing to? Now, we don't have specifics. It's not like some letters where you get a certain city at a certain time. Um, this is more to what we can tell a specific church. But where and who, we don't know. Right? So in order to understand the context, we have to ask why this letter is being written. But first, let's look at these general Christians, church, how he identifies them. So look, look closely with me at verse 1, and who Jude is writing to, it's a, it, he identifies them by three things. To those who are called, to those who are beloved in God, God the Father, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. This is a letter written to Christians, and right at the beginning, right, uh, sometimes we, over, we overlook these introductions and these closings, and we just view them as a general greeting. But within the here, it's actually a lot of truth for who we are as Christians, our very identity. And I think these three identities right here mentioned are incredibly important for who we are as followers of Jesus, as servants of Jesus. First one is that we are called. 
right? If you look at the needs for what all human beings need, every human being needs a purpose. And right here, by being identified as one who is called, Judah's calling out something unique about us as Christians, that we have a purpose because we are called. As Christians, part of our identity is that we are called by God, and all that is associated with that is our purpose. We become his children and his servants, those who carry on the work of the Great Commission while we are waiting for Jesus to return. That is our purpose. But more than that, it says that we are beloved by God the Father. So another human need is to be loved, to be loved deeply. And we see part of our identity is that we are God's adopted children and he loves us. We are beloved by the Father. And finally, another human need is the need for security. And we see that while we have this purpose and while we are loved deeply by the Father, we are also secure in that relationship because it says we are kept for Jesus. In other words, you do not have to fear no matter what comes upon you because you know that part of who you are is that you are someone that is being kept for Jesus. And because of the importance of Jesus, you know that that God will not fail in that protecting and in that keeping so that we are brought holy and pure and unblemished until the what is called in Revelation the wedding feast, where the bride of Christ, the church, is brought into marriage with the Son of God. We will be kept. So Jude begins this letter, and he makes sure that those he's writing to understand who they are as Christians, their very identity, their purpose, that they are loved by the Father, and that they are secure and kept for Jesus. And then he says, now may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied on you. That's the end of his greeting, but we see that because of their identity, they can, Jew can pray this prayer that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to them, and he can expect it to be answered. Because as Christians, as those who are called, as those who are beloved by the Father, and those who are kept in Jesus, we can expect that when prayed, God will multiply love, peace, and mercy on us. And so that's how he begins. But now let's look closely at the letter. Why is Jude writing this letter? And you'll find something interesting. So verse 3 says this, Beloved, once again, identifying them as beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, instead he does something else. So Jude is very eager, this idea that he is looking forward and he is working hard towards writing them a letter about something important, specifically their common salvation. And you see many of the letters in the New Testament write about this. It's important. The foundation for us as Christians, we share this common salvation in Jesus because Jesus became a human being who lived a perfect life that we could never live, who took on our sin and our place, died and rose again so that we might be forgiven of sins and have a new life. We have salvation. That's our common salvation that all Christians in all places and all times, speaking all languages, share. And it's incredibly important for Jude to write, but something more urgent and pressing comes up. What could be so important for Jude that instead of this original letter, one that is important, we see by his eagerness to write, he changes it instead to address a problem. What could be so important? What could be the problem? And that's where we continue reading. He says this, I found it necessary to write appealing for you to contend 
for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So instead of writing about that common faith, he's instead writing to urge them to contend for it. And specifically, we see something about our faith. We see that it is a common faith shared among all Christians, that there is only one source of faith whom we know is Jesus, right? The common salvation. We know that it is the same faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. That once and for all, I want you to notice, what that once and for all tells us is that this message of faith, this common salvation, is complete. That nothing needs to be added to it to make it better, that it doesn't have to adjust for changing times, that the faith that we have is once and for all delivered and unchanging, and it is perfect and fit for every age and time and situation. That's going to be important later on here, but, but that's the faith that he's asking them to contend for. But also notice who he's asking to contend for the faith. This is not a special apologist with special training on how to, how to defend against the arguments of, of the people around him. This is not special people in the church, the elders and the leaders and the teachers and the, the pastors. No, he is writing to who? Well, he is writing to those who are called, those who are beloved by the Father, and those who are kept for Jesus. In other words, all of us as Christians are called to contend for the faith to actively contend for the faith. And, and as we're going to see, what is so pressing that we must stand up and contend? But what I want you to notice first is this contending is active. We contend for the faith. We defend the faith. We actively defend it uh, from challenges and errors and corruptions, right? This is something we saw in 2nd and 3rd John, especially 2nd John, where it says, don't share your hospitality with those who are corrupting the gospel and teaching false things about Jesus. So that's more passive. Don't give your assistance and aid of those working against the gospel. This is more active. Actively contend for the faith. So what is so pressing? What is so against the gospel that, they, that all Christians must stand and defend against it? What is the error that Jude is addressing that corrupts the proclamation of the gospel, that makes it ineffective, that he has to urgently change what he's writing for in order to address it. And, and I want you, we've already read it, but if you had to answer that question, what would you have thought before we read it? What would you have thought that is so urging and pressing that he has to speak out about? Would it have been some false teaching about Jesus? Would it have been some false Messiah coming? Like, what, what is so pressing here? And so we're going to read it once again in case you missed it. But here's what it says. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. In other words, there's those within the body of Christ who pretend to be Christians, who pretend to share the common faith and common salvation. And what are these people doing? Well, who long ago were designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. In other words, what these people are doing is they're saying, look, we all have grace in the gospel. You've been forgiven of all sins. Therefore, you might as well enjoy it, right? If you're going to be forgiven, then just enjoy life to its fullest. Now, this is familiar because, as it turns out, this is a common thing that affects all humans through all ages. I'm sure many of you have heard similar arguments. But, but let's consider the argument for a second. So these people come into the body of Christ and they say, well, if the gospel forgives us from all sins, 
if it is something given freely, not something we can earn, if there's nothing we can add to it, that means no matter what, we, we can be forgiven by Jesus for our sins. So if you can be forgiven and you get to enjoy the sin without the consequences and the guilt and the shame associated, why not, right? Why not enjoy it to its fullest? And it's a good question that we have to address. And it's such an important question that Jude changed what he was writing for specifically to address this problem. But, but let's, let's look at the text first. What does the text say is wrong with this opinion? Well, if we keep reading, we keep reading verse 4, it says this, that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the problem with this idea. The problem is this. They have a view of Jesus that is imaginary. He shares the name, but he doesn't share anything else. Because to accept Jesus as Savior is to, is to accept him as your master and Lord. Notice that he uses two words here. We're used to Jesus being referred to as Lord, and sometimes because we're in a democracy and not a monarchy, we forget what that means. But Lord is a title of authority, someone who has to be listened to, obeyed. But I think we get it when it's combined with master here, right? Lord and master, repeating this idea as someone with authority that must be obeyed twice. The Bible doesn't repeat things unless it's important, unless it's getting your attention. In other words, to accept Jesus as Savior is to accept him as Lord. To not accept him as Master and Lord is to accept an imaginary fake Jesus of your own making. So what is the problem? Why does this affect the gospel? To say that to continue in sin because you're forgiven has a false view of who Jesus is and what he came to save you from. But let's go in further why this is such a problem. Because I think this, it, this hits our culture very well right now. Probably all cultures to a certain extent. But, but let's look at our culture right now. There's this view of what a good life is, right? If you ask most people who do not have a faith background, who do not believe in a God, what, what makes a life good and worth living? That You might get many different answers, but a common one is someone who can squeeze the most joy and happiness out of their life. That's kind of the common thing taught. And so what you get is this idea that the more pleasure you get in life, the more enjoyment out of things in life that you get, the better life you will have because there's no next life. All you have is this life, so live life to the fullest, right? Live life as much and as enjoyably as you can. And so there's this conception when it comes to pleasures in life that you have the greatest enemy from enjoying life to the fullest is kind of this puritanical Judeo-Christian morals that get in the way, right? That they're restricting all the joy we can have out of life and that if we just abandon all these false morals and if we just give up the guilt and shame associated, we can enjoy all the pleasures of life and, and we can enjoy it fully, right? We wouldn't have to worry about all these other things and, and that guilt and shame that comes from these puritanical values just keep us from truly enjoying life. Does this sound familiar? A familiar argument that many of us have heard? Now, here's the thing. If that argument is true, we actually do have a serious problem as a church. 
I think a lot of times what we argue is that, well, yeah, sin can be enjoyable, but it's not good. Right? And so, and so in order to avoid the condemnation of God, we, we need to not give in to it, even though it's really good and enjoyable. And there's a truth that we must obey God even if it is difficult. That's true. But we're missing part of the truth here. Because here's the problem with this. If God, if we are claiming that God loves us deeply, if he wants the best for us, that he knows us more intimately than we know ourselves, and that he designed us, he made us who we are, then the idea that God made these good gifts that we can only truly enjoy fully if we disobey him is a serious problem. What you would expect as a Christian, if you truly believe the scripture, is that actually when we go outside of God's will for our life, we actually lose a lot of the enjoyment of the good gifts of that, that the corruption of the gift actually makes it worse. That the only way to truly enjoy this gift in this lifetime is if we actually listen to the God who designed us in a specific way and who knows us more than we know ourselves. Right? This is important for us because oftentimes when we just argue that, yeah, sin might be enjoyable, but we got to obey God, we're missing a, par- a powerful part of the gospel message. And that is this, that if you continue in sin, if you continue searching after sensuality and pleasure and happiness above everything else, the last thing you actually get is any sort of lasting happiness or joy or satisfaction or pleasure. Actually, what you are getting is you're running yourself into misery and pain and heartache. And that's our contention. And if you look at the people in our culture who held up is kind of these these great examples of people who have lived life to the fullest. And you look at their lives and ask this question, were they actually happy? What I think you'll get is a resounding no. Look at some of the examples. I, 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 have exa- I don't want to cherry pick examples, so anyone you think of, I encourage you to look at their lives. See if, if by rejecting God and pursuing pleasure above everything else, they actually made themselves happy or if they made themselves miserable. But there are some common examples. One of the biggest ones I use is uh, uh, Michael Phelps, who is one of the greatest athletes of our time. If you look at his life, the very moment he should have been happy when he had the most gold medals, right? He achieved everything he possibly wanted in life. If, if you ask him, he, that was actually the time he was suffering most from depression and from heartache and sadness. Why? Well, it's because what he thought would make him happy actually didn't. And sometimes the cruelest thing that can happen to human beings is that for God to let you get everything that you ever wanted. In fact, this is the beginning of Romans, if you think about it. Romans, God says that they they sought after all the lust of their flesh and the greatest judgment that God gave them was essentially that he gave them over to it. He let them have everything they wanted and they destroyed themselves because of it. And that's the problem with the human condition after the fall, that what we think we desire, what we think will give us joy and happiness and satisfaction and pleasure actually gives us the opposite, actually moves us farthest away from that. And and what seems contradictory, actually, when we stop seeking that first and we actually seek to give up our own desires and our own wants in service of the God of the universe, he actually gives us all of that in a way that is far more satisfactory and far more pleasurable. 
That's the contention at least, right? But do we have fruit? We would expect to see that in the lives of those within the church. We'd expect to see them have a more joyful, happy life, and we expect to see those who pursue pleasure above everything else have more miserable, painful, heartbreaking experiences. But do we have evidence for that? I think you can look at many of the stories and see it, but as it turns out, this is something that people want to study, right? And, and so uh, I was looking this week at two specific studies. One of them is a joint study from the Institute for Family Studies and the Wheatley Institute, and they asked what makes a relationship good. And so they examined all these different factors for a good and fulfilling ro romantic marital relationship. And they asked all these questions, who has the most satisfying marriage? Who has the most uh, enjoyable marriage? Who has the most enjoyable sexual experience in marriage? And what every one of those showed is the people who had the most joyful, satisfying marriages were by far highly religious heterosexual couples, right? And in fact, that even includes sexual satisfaction. Who were the most satisfied in their marriage? Well, it turns out it was highly religious heterosexual couples. Now, that is not just Christianity, but it's almost as if sexu your sexual relationship was designed by someone, and that designer made it so that this was meant to bring fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and intimacy in marriage, and that outside of that, it actually brought destruction. Right? It's almost like that. Well, the evidence shows that that's what's happening. And that might be surprising to some people because the idea of the age is that if you just throw off these Judeo-Christian morals and you just release the guilt and the shame, then you'll be so much happier. But it's not happening. And what you're left concluding is, is that guilt and shame actually because of Judeo-Christian morals clinging on to a culture that has long ago banned Christianity? Is that what's happening here? Is this some leftover guilt and shame? Is this why the numbers are so skewed? Or is it, and this is what I would contend, that the reason people feel so guilty and shameful is because they are guilty and what they have done is shameful, and that no matter how much they hide the truth, they can't escape it. The guilt and the shame are actual, concrete, true things that no matter how much you disguise God and his morals, you can't escape from it. That human beings, although corrupted by the fall, are still made in the image of God and still recognize what is wrong and what is evil. All right? Now, I don't want to give you this overly like cheap car salesman view of Christianity. We still live in a fallen world. There are still hard things in life. There's, relationships are still hard. They're still corrupted by the fall. But what this is showing us is that if we actually follow God's plan, we will actually receive more satisfaction. And not only that, but if we actually put God above these plans and seek him before these things, then we actually get more joy out of these things instead of if we just sought after joy from these things in and of themselves. Turns out that pleasure does not make a good God. And when we try to make it God, it, it, it both fails at being God and fails at bringing us lasting pleasure. But that's not the only study. The other study was from Gallup. 
And, and what they studied was who had the best emotional health. So they looked at who had the least depression, who had the least addictions, who had the least cases of suicide and anxiety and everything else. And once again, maybe this is surprising, but it shouldn't be. Who had the best emotional health? Who were most satisfied and happy in their lives? And it turns out it was once again highly committed religious people who had a faith community that they saw on a regular basis. It turns out that God's plan actually brings us more joy. And then when we reject God's plan, it brings us more pain and more sorrow. But returning once again to why Jude found this lie so important to address. Why does this counteract our faith? And, and here's the truth. The joy of the gospel is that Jesus came to free you from sin. Not just the consequences from sin, but from sin itself. And in order for that to be good news, you have to understand that sin is horrible. That no matter what lie you're told, it will not bring you joy or satisfaction or happiness. So to preach this idea that somehow you can accept the grace of Jesus and at the same time enjoy sin to the fullest misunderstands the gospel entirely. No, Jesus came to set you free from sin. Why would you go back to it? Why would it ever be good news to have freedom from the consequences of sin, but still be trapped to it, enslaved to it? That's not good news. That's horrible news. And it completely strips the power of the gospel to teach that. And so Jude is writing these Christians to urge them, contend for the faith. Watch out for those who sneak into your churches and tell you this lie. So how do you contend for the faith? Now, we're going to obviously study the rest of Jude, and he has a lot more to say about this. But I think there's two people we have to address in order to understand how we contend for the faith. And first one is you, Christian, who have believed this lie that somehow being, being able to enjoy sin to the fullest without the guilt is in any way good news, right? So there's the first one who says, yes, I know that God wants this out of my life, but he's already forgiven me, so I'm going to continue down this route of sin. The, in order to contend for the faith, you first have to understand that you're being lied to, and you have to reject this. I think some of the hardest, just to kind of be open with you, hardest moments for me as a pastor have been when I have watched the people I love and care for as a pastor who just cause themselves so much pain and misery and heartache, and they don't have to, but they won't give up their sin, right? <laughs> they just continually hurt themselves again and again and again, and they cause themselves nothing from pain because they won't let the sin go. And they can. They're free in the gospel. But they keep pursuing it because they keep believing that somehow it will bring them joy. Right. So for you, I know I've counseled many single people. So one of the common ways this shows up in a single person as a Christian is that you somehow believe that in order to be a full, live a full, satisfied, joyful human life, you need to get married. And so the biggest threat to your joy in life is that you are unmarried. And so you look and you begin to compromise. You know, I know it's better that I marry someone who loves Jesus and who is mature in their faith and who will leave and we can love Jesus together well, but like that's not happening, so it's better to compromise than to be lonely, right? No, it's not. 
Can I tell you that as a 33-year-old man who's still single? It's not better, right? All that will bring is so much pain and heartache. Stop believing that lie. Or, or to the person who is in a relationship, and in order to continue that relationship, they have to compromise their values. They go, I know that it would be better if we waited till marriage to have sex, but I think the only way to keep this marriage is to, to compromise. And you think that that will bring you happiness because eventually you'll get married and it'll be good and it'll be fine. And you don't realize how much pain and heartache and joy is being stolen from you because you compromise in this area. Or, or even for you in your relationships, the person who needs to be respected and gets angry when they ever feel disrespected, you know that you need to give forgiveness and give grace and to respond gently and with kindness. But you think what will actually bring you happiness is if you cause the fear of you to be instilled in your kids or in your spouse or in those, your friends. And so instead of actually giving grace and instead of actually letting go of your anger, what you do instead is you drive a nail, a wedge in all of your relationships, causing nothing but heartache and distance and loneliness and pain to you and the people that you profess to love. I could keep going on with examples, and there, there's many more, but all of them come down to the root question. Do you trust that God knows more about how to bring you joy and happiness than you do? Do you trust him enough that when the Bible tells you to do something that seems like misery and seems like death to you, you do it because you know God knows better than you? Yeah, it might, it might be hard. I mean, it'll probably be hard, right? Giving up sin feels like dying because it is dying, right? But in the end, it is going to bring, be the only thing that brings you joy. And, and, and satisfaction and happiness, at least at last. And that's the premise of the gospel. That's the promise that we are given. Do you, have you believed a lie? And if so, reject it. We will pray for you. I know that giving up sin is hard to crucify yourself and your selfish desires is hard and is painful, but it's not meant to be done alone. So come to us. Uh, and, and at the end of James, it says to profess your sins one to another so that you might be healed. You're forgiven for the sin already, but in the very act of confessing your sins to fellow Christians who share with you the grace of God they have been given, there's a healing in that. And we want to help you in that. So confess your sins. The other is the person who has believed the lie, but they responded slightly differently. And that is the Christian who goes, yeah, I know it would be really enjoyable if I just kind of gave into the sin, but it's not good. And so you're kind of just sheer willpowering your way through life, and you're living life as if like you've been deprived of something. But you're doing it for God, right? Miserable, but at least I'm holy, right? <laughs> but the picture in the Bible is that's not actually a thing. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy, and it's for a reason. You've been convinced of a lie that somehow Pursuing that sin to the fullest would have brought you more joy. But you don't have to live in misery for that. Actually, it turns out following God's plan will bring you so much more happiness and satisfaction. That yeah, I mean, you're in a fallen world. There are going to be seasons of pain and heartache. Sometimes very, very long seasons. But it, those seasons, you are never without hope. Because we know that they are just that, a season. 
that there will come a day where Jesus returns and sets all things right. And in between then and now, it's not just like God sets you in a time of misery until he restores all things. He actually, in his kindness, gives us taste of his goodness. He lets us enjoy these good things in the present moment. Yes, they're just taste of what's to come. They're very, very good taste. Turns out following Jesus and following his way for your life is actually incredibly enjoyable and joyful experience. In other words, don't cave to this lie, this propaganda. I know it's told often and it's told passionately and no other arguments are allowed to be heard sometimes, but no, sin will never bring you happiness or satisfaction. It will do nothing but rob you of joy. And so then, how do we contend for the faith? Well, the first one is, in your very life, reject the lie, live in such a way that you truly, in your bones, believe that following God will bring you the most joy and happiness. And let your face show it, right? <laughs> I know this is hard for me. I often have a very much resting face that does not look joyful. I'm not saying you have to fake it or, or put on like a thin veneer of happiness, but actually be joyful. Go to God. And if you don't feel joyful, ask him to give you the fruit of the spirit that is joy. All right. There are several practical ways you can do this. One is by spending, and this is a practice that has helped me, by the way. In the morning, when I wake up, I spend a certain amount of time each day thinking of how God has already blessed me because he has a lot. Even in dark seasons, he has been incredibly kind and gracious to us. And it turns out by rehearsing those things, you begin to cultivate a life that is full of thanksgiving and full of joy, right? This is not a ma magic miracle cure or pill. It's not, it's, if you suffer with serious depression, it's not going to suddenly make you a happy, cheerful person. Like there are counselors who will help you with that. Some of you, it's a, it's a, a it's a chemical thing that you need help from the good gift that God has given through doctors. But for the majority of us Christians, and for all Christians even, this practice will help you begin to cultivate joy. And as you do that, and as you live your life in this way, you are contending for the faith, for the true gospel, that salvation from sin is better than sin. But it's more than that. When you actually hear these lies, challenge them. Most people haven't been challenged. This idea that uh, you'd be so much more happy in life if you just allowed yourself to have unlimited uh, sex and food and all the pleasures of life unrestricted often isn't challenged. So challenge them. Go, is that true? One of the best ways to ask this question, so if you are not a Christian and you're, and, you, and you're listening to me and you don't find yourself believing, all I ask for you this week is to ask yourself this question. Is your pursuit of all of these pleasures in life actually bringing you happiness? Is it actually bringing you satisfying joy? Most people haven't been asked that question because when they're forced to ask that question, what they find is no. Actually, all these things I'm chasing after are bringing me a lot of complication in life, bringing a lot of headache. In fact, I, I actually feel more depressed and more anxious after that momentary time of pleasure, right? It turns out that God has made us and created us in such a way that when we turn from his way of life, when we turn to sin, he doesn't let us experience full joy from that, which is a kindness, which is a grace, because we would head full steam after it, right? 
But God in his kindness has made it to where when people pursue a life of nothing but pleasure, he'll give it to them. And that will be one of their worst punishments. And so ask the question when people challenge you on this. Ask them, are you actually happy? Are you actually satisfied with the way that your life is going? Are your choices actually bringing you more joy, more satisfaction? And just let the question linger, because here's the thing. If they think yes, then the Holy Spirit hasn't done the work in them yet. So just pray for them. But oftentimes what they'll get is, if they're honest, if they're brave enough to be honest, they'll say, no, actually. Now, they may not believe the gospel at that point, but it is a great opportunity to share with them, hey, you don't keep having to make yourself be miserable. There's a better option out there. And so the beginning of Jude begins by calling all Christians who are beloved by the Father, who are called by the Father, and who are kept for Jesus to contend for the faith, to contend against those who would lie and say that pursuit of sin is better than salvation from sin. And so when you do that, by living a life that shows how much better it is to be forgiven of sin, and when you challenge that lie as a lie, you join in this work of contending for the faith and drawing people towards Jesus. So that's where I want to end today. I want to challenge you, if you are a Christian here, to examine your own life. Have you bought into this lie? And if so, I challenge you to go to other Christians and confess where you have believed this lie and begin to experience healing. And I challenge you, when those in your life who you're trying to point to Jesus bring up this lie, to just ask them. Ask them good questions. Ask them if they're actually happy with the life that they're choosing for themselves. And with that, I want to pray for us, and we'll continue worshiping through song. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you for calling us, for loving us, and for keeping us for Jesus. I pray that we would see the beauty of the gospel and the freedom and joy we have from salvation, and that we would diligently and passionately and faithfully contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered for the saints. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.